Hi, I'm David Eulen. I'm a contributing editor to Ziziva, this fine publication right here. Um, and so I've been asked to do the MC honors, which I will do. Um, I was not planning to read, but then Lou suggested I read. So I'm going to read something small, which I'm not going to do just yet, but I, I will do in a minute. But I was going to do something small. Lou said it would help sell books. So I'm going to read something that's never been published or you know, that is not in any book. Um, but before I read, I do want to say, I'm going to, as the MC, I'm going to take the liberty of dedicating this evening's event to Carolyn C., to the memory of Carolyn C., um, who, one of the reasons I was looking at my phone, a friend of mine was saying, stop texting, but I wasn't texting. I was looking at the, Ziziva has this amazing archive on their website, including a full index of everything that has ever been published in, in the journal. So I wanted to look and see if Carolyn had ever published in Ziziva. I assumed she might must have, but um, I have a habit of making assumptions that don't turn out to be true. But in fact, she did. She published a short story called How Scared We Got in issue number six, a hundred issues ago. And um, I just want to say quickly that this is the, you know, part, like this event or this, to me, this is, this kind of thing is her legacy. Um, not just a legacy of a writing legacy, but a community legacy. And, um, and I think, you know, as I I've been thinking about her in the last couple of days. That was, the, for me, the most resonant lesson that she taught me about being a writer, which was that writers have to participate in community, that writers have to encourage other writers and be generous to other writers, that writers have to mentor other writers. Um, and so um, here's to you. And so, in the interest of, um, well, since I think about death a lot anyway, I'm going to read a kind of a weird death poem. But it is also, I believe, um, the world's first and perhaps only Mott the Hoople poem. <laughs> and for those of you who are unfamiliar with Mott the Hoople, or uh, my obsession with Mott the Hoople, my writer friends, um, Rob Roberge and Todd Goldberg and I share a kind of 3 a.m. Mott the Hoople club. Uh, Mott the Hoople was a great, underrated, sort of semi glam rock British band of the, of the 1970s, um, which I think is pretty much all you probably need to know, except actually you need to know one other thing quickly. This is going to take about, I mean, the, the setup is going to take longer than the reading, um, that the, the leader of Mott the Hoople, the resident genius of Mott the Hoople, um, the much underrated and unappreciated Ian Hunter, um, wrote a song called Irene Wilde, which is the name of this poem, which appeared on his second solo album, a record called All American Alien Boy that came out in 1976. These are the factual basis. Uh, this is just the, you know, I like to make sure people have the pertinent information. So this is a never published poem called Irene Wilde. It's dedicated to my nephew, Curtis, who is a guitar player. In the next room, my nephew plays a song I first heard in this apartment four decades ago, and time collapses. Past and future infiltrating one another until the boundaries blur. A tough week. Adult responsibility crashing in on me like a tower falling, and all I want to do is hide out in the rubble, run away. Earlier this morning, in the kitchen, we were talking about Mick Ronson, who I saw play with Ian Hunter in 1982. Now my nephew is singing Irene Wilde in his father's old bedroom, and I'm remembering my dead friend Anthony Stark, with whom I discovered this music, Mott the Hoople, All-American Alien Boy. We were boys ourselves then, barely 14, but I am a boy no longer. 
54, and there's so much more, although today it doesn't feel like that, or maybe I don't care to know. Who am I? Where am I going? There's a subtext to this poem, but I don't want to share it. Rather, listen to my nephew play a 40-year-old song no one else knows, hiding behind a closed door so he cannot see me, cannot hear me sing along. Thank you. And now... So I have, um, I'm just going to introduce everybody sort of as they come up. I, uh, uh, Lou and I created a running order, but I realized we never told anybody what it is. So um, we have tipped Jim off that he's going to lead off. So the first, the first reader is Jim Gavin, um, who is the author of Middleman, published by Simon & Schuster. His fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, Zoetrope, Esquire, The Mississippi Review, and Ziziva. So please welcome Jim Gavin. Thank you. Um, this is great. Our, I'm excited about this for many reasons. One, Zizaba has been very good to me over the years. Um, and two, get, uh, reading with um, so many great writers and uh, especially uh, good friends of mine, Lou Matthews and Dana Johnson, who are as, as good as anybody who's ever uh, grown up in L.A. and tried to write about it. And um, you should seek out their work. Uh, Dana's collection comes out when? It's out. God damn, it's out. Okay. Yeah. Um, there you go. Uh, normally, uh, you know, I like to give a dynamic, high-energy performance, um, <laughs> reading fiction, stunning passages with lots of cracking dialogue. But uh, tonight, I'm going to read a a dry essay about Joyce. <laughs> so um, every year, I I'm a big uh, Ulysses reader, which is not annoying at all. And uh, the um, around uh, June, I start to read passages, and it's usually I try and write a little essay that's kind of reflective about whatever I'm at in my life or what what's going on in the world. And so this is what I wrote this year. Um, uh, it's called uh, it's Bloomsday 2016, Notes on the Womanly Man. Uh, it starts with a quote from Joyce, Cruelty is weakness. It's a let from, he wrote that in a letter to his brother. Um, in the second episode of Ulysses, Stephen Dedalus teaches a history lesson to a class of confused and disinterested boys. He speaks of Pyrrhus and broods on the endless catalog of war and brutality that brought them all to this moment. Afterwards, Stephen goes to the office of Mr. Deasy, the headmaster, to pick up his paycheck. Stephen just wants his money so he can go drinking, but the elder Mr. Deasy decides to favor him with some wisdom. All the problems in the world, he explains, can be traced back to the Jews. Also, women. <laughs> Jews and women, those are the two culprits. At some point, as Deasy drones on in the pious and confident tone of the casually deranged, Stephen mutters his famous lament, history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. For Joyce, the nightmare was the world of men. He spent his life trying to escape the narrow and lethal definition of manhood that he inherited from every previous generation. Hell hath no fury like wounded male vanity. It is the great constant of history, taking up different forms at different times, dressed up in different faiths and different ideologies, 
but it is always the same pathetic charade. On the morning of June 16th, we meet Stephen on the threshold of disaster. In the wake of his mother's death, he is broke, alone, angry, sexually repressed, and incapable of joy. The world tastes of ash, and he lives entirely in his head. He left Dublin to become a great poet, but the world failed to recognize his genius. And now he's back in his hometown, just another hopeless and anonymous young man, lost in self-pity and cut off from his emotions. Clouds of doom hang over him, and there seems no escape, not just from history, but from the horror of himself. When we meet Leopold Bloom, he is making breakfast for his wife and speaking affectionately to a cat. Later, we will see him shit in an outhouse and jerk off on a beach. He enjoys both immensely. This is our hero. He also buys soap, attends a funeral, chases down a business lead, nurtures a platonic affair, smokes a cigar in a pub, imagines himself as a woman, helps a young man up off the ground, and finally he returns home and climbs into bed with his wife. They sleep head to toe. If you pass Bloom on the street, you would never notice him. His outward life is circumscribed by the dingy streets of Dublin and the demands of his totally inconsequential, excuse me, inconsequential career as an advertising canvasser. But his inward life is vast, beautiful, and full of humor. He is totally at ease with his own shadows and contradictions. He accepts the world and takes pleasure in the smallest things. He has known tragedy, the suicide of his father, the death of his infant son, and he has known joy as husband to Molly and father to Millie. He loves animals, abhors violence, and accepts the fact that his wife is fucking someone else. This last bit causes him pain, but he learned long ago that the world is bigger than his pain, and possession plays no part in his understanding of love. Bloom is the son of a Jewish immigrant, and so the obvious choice to be the hero of an Irish epic. Bloom is Dublin through and through, but he is still an outsider. His fellow citizens like him well enough, but he is still a mystery, and they don't quite trust him. In their minds, he is passive and womanly. They all know his wife is having an affair. What is wrong with him? What kind of man is this? In the Cyclops episode, the locals gather in Barney Kiernan's pub to discuss world affairs. At the center sits the citizen, a brawny, loud-mouthed nationalist with a righteous opinion on every topic. Bloom steps into an atmosphere thick with brutalist humor and incipient violence. The citizen, like Deasy, is an anti-Semite and never fails to slight Bloom under his breath. The men discuss war and national pride. Bloom is up for any discussion and offers contradictory opinions that enrage the citizen. How can Bloom, a Jew with no Irish blood, care for the Irish nation? Bloom defines a nation simply and brilliantly as the same people living in the same place. That is, the citizen continues to bully Bloom, and we feel at any moment he might start swinging. But Bloom is the bravest person in the pub. He stands his ground and questions the entire basis of the citizen's life. And I belong to a race, too, says Bloom, that is hated and persecuted. Also now, this very moment, this very instant. Robbed, he says. Plundered, insulted, persecuted, taking what belongs to us by right. At this very moment, says he, putting up his fist, sold by auction in Morocco like slaves or cattle. Are you talking about the new Jerusalem, says the citizen. I'm talking about injustice, says Bloom. Right, says John Wise. Stand up to it then, with force, like men. But it's no use, said Bloom. 
force, hatred, history, all that. That's not life for men and women. <clears throat> Insult and hatred. And everybody knows that it's the very opposite of that that is really life. What, says Alf. Love, says Bloom. I mean the opposite of hatred. Bloom is quickly mocked for uttering this sentimental tripe, but he doesn't seem to mind. He has access to a word, a feeling, a universe, love, that men like the citizen do everything in their power to avoid. Because letting in that word, that feeling, would destroy the facade of strength they spend every, make, every waking moment trying to maintain. <clears throat> the labyrinth of Ulysses is designed with a single purpose. On this ordinary day, June 16th, a young man, Stephen Dedalus, will meet an older man, Leopold Bloom, who is totally free from the definitions of manhood that make men and the rest of the world so miserable. Bloom wakes Stephen from the nightmare of history. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. Uh, Dana Johnson will be the next reader. She is the author of the short story collection In the Not Quite Dark, which is available and you should all buy. Um, it's forthcoming from Counterpoint in August 2016, but it's here. Um, she's also the author of Break Any Woman Down, which won the Flannery O'Connor Award for short fiction, and the novel Elsewhere, California. Both books were Hurston Wright Legacy Award nominees. Her work has appeared in the Paris Review, Callahoo, and the, Ir and the Iowa Review, I almost said the Irish Review, um, among others. Born and raised in and around Los Angeles, she is a professor of English at the University of Southern California. Dana Johnson. Um, thank you to Ziziva um, for allowing me to be a guest reader tonight. I have yet to be published in Ziziva, so I'm looking forward to that day. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. Let's just say the previous editor wasn't so nice. <laughs> um, and speaking of mentors and writers taking care of each other, um, just so happy to be reading with Jim Gavin, who wrote a gorgeous blurb for me on the back of this book. Thank you, Jim. And also to be reading with Lou Matthews, who has been my mentor and friend for more than 20 years. So love you. Thank you. I will be reading from the last story in my collection called The Story of Biddy Mason. And most people don't know her story, but it is said that um, as a slave, she walked all the way from Mississippi to uh, California. She was a wedding gift to her master, Robert Smith, who was Mormon. And she amassed a fortune of $300,000 somehow after being a slave. Um, she was a philanthropist, um, a real estate mogul, um, a midwife. Um, but the beginning of this story has to do with um, Huntington, Henry Edwards Huntington, who most people know a great deal more about. Um, so I'll start with him, and then the second half of the story is Biddy, so hopefully you'll just buy the book and see what happens. <laughs> Some people come from greatness and mistake it for something else. If you are a baby boy named Henry Edward Huntington, born in Anianta, for instance, a mere village in Ostego County in central New York in the year 1850, you are unaware that your people come from what some people called 
good stock. When America was revolutionizing, your people were there. After America put its foot down, drew a line in the sand, demanded its freedom, your people were there. At Yale, in courthouses overseeing justice, at Harvard, your people were there. Two of your people were there in the Continental Congress. Benjamin Huntington at first, and then another, Samuel Huntington. Chief Justice, Justice of the Supreme Court of Connecticut, Governor of Connecticut. But before that, another Huntington, waiting for that attention hog, John Hancock, to hurry up and sign his name, waiting for the ink to dry on that overcompensating shout my name in the street signature in 1776 so he, Samuel Huntington, could sign his name so modestly you could hardly see it. It's so camouflaged, surrounded by the sweeping tails and curly cues and figure eight flourishes of alphabets that spell the name of men who mean to say for those who don't know, we were here we were here this is our declaration but Samuel you have to look very hard to see him he who signed his name Sam not even Samuel but Sam just a regular Joe you would think an okay guy who's not too big for his britches no not him or that other Sam Sam Adams they're just two Sams the kind of guys who might pour you an ale or two Sam Huntington, he did all that in his 65 years and then he was gone. No college education even. But who needs an education when the promise of life for you, a Huntington, for you, a Hancock, for you, an Adams, is like standing in front of a gate, the chains cut and the obstru obstructions thrown open to see infinity. If you are Henry Edwards Huntington staring through those gates thrown wide open, it's scary. All that modesty, humili humility, and power. How to figure out his life. What a tough road ahead. In the meantime, he loves stories. Imagination, he has one, undervalued as they are. He loves stories so much that he collects books that tell stories in the form of history and fiction and poetry. He loves books and arts and botanicals so that one day he will collect them and give them to his city, his savior, Los Angeles. Countless books, so much art. He will acquire major pieces of art. One big coup was the Blue Boy, which pissed off the British. The London Daily Mirror egged him on. Who did he think he was? In 1916, some gossip columnist wrote, I hear that Mr. H.E. Huntington, famous American millionaire, has the finest collection of the English school of pictures in the world. The columnist continued, winding up her middle finger. He has not got the Duke of Westminster's great Gainsborough, the blue boy, though the Duke has refused an offer of 80,000 pounds. I hope, the columnist said, sticking out her tongue, that picture will never leave England. Yeah, well, guess who was broke in 1921? <laughs> the Duke took Huntington's $600,000 like a man counting cash at the racetrack trying to make it to payday. He even threw in another Gainsborough and a Reynolds to sweeten the deal, and England was so over Huntington, the greedy American. The National Gallery of London showed the painting for weeks before it was to be esconded with by a mogul. Goodbye to the blue boy, the paper said. The lost masterpiece, they cried, and they blew kisses to their boy, who was going to be in some library in what one paper called the land of freaks and freedom. 
This is what Huntington gives to the city, stories and art. He changes Southern California, expands it, brings big business, opens it up so Angelinos can get to entirely other worlds in their own city and state. Just pick a train. Still, in 1921, the Los Angeles Herald understood the big deal about a story. The material benefits are cool, the paper says, and trains. We wouldn't be anywhere without trains, but compared to a library, not even close. The paper called the Huntington Library a, quote, mass of books. The paper said that from its mass of books will be created new thoughts, new knowledge, and thought as the one one imperishable, ever-productive effort of mankind. One thing about libraries, though, is that they can't contain all the stories, and Huntington Huntington himself only collected books, quote, of interest to him. The man who loves stories is usually the story of Los Angeles. Those Mulhollands, those Chandlers, those Doheny's, they are always the story. But before this, before he is Huntington Beach, Huntington Library, Mr. Pacific Electric, overseeing the tracks being laid into the ground like steel veins that will pump the people in and around throughout the city, he was lost. What to do with his life? What to do? He was what we call now a screw-up. The way his uncle Collis saw it, a more generous way of putting it is that it took him a few tries and help from his father, Salon, and his uncle, Collins, who supplied the dough, gave him jobs, even handed him a logging business to oversee, which he screwed up. He tried. He really did. And sometimes he succeeded. In West Virginia, he bragged about his successes in a letter home to mom, blowing on his fingernails and buffing them on his lapels. We had a flood on the Coal River, he wrote. I had most excellent luck with my timber, as I had six or $7,000 worth of timber in the river and did not lose a single log. But sometimes guys like that, they think they hit a triple when they were born on third base. When Uncle Collis takes the training wheels off and gives him half an interest in the company and the other half is bought by Collis's chief resident lobbyist in Washington for his kid, another third baser named Franchot, boy, did they make a mess. These kids didn't know what they were doing. Huntington kept hitting Collis up for loans until Collis finally held up his palm and shook his head with finality. And that other rich kid, Franchot, who liked to sip now and then, was embarrassed that he had to sell his Wells Fargo stock so that they could stay afloat. While the elder Franchot and Collis had had enough, pulled the plug. Franchot, Civil War General Franchot, before he was a Washington lobbyist with money floating out of his pockets as he walked down the street, told Collis he was through with the young knuckleheads. All of this is mortifying to me and annoys me, he said. I think it is a piece of boys' play, nonsensical and simply shows that they are not equal to the business. I am disgusted with such damn foolishness, and I think they should both be spanked into manly habits. But to be fair, a lot of this is on General Franchot and Uncle Collis. Years before this, Huntington wanted to take a job, any job, and his uncle told him to wait. But I found a job, Huntington said, anxious to get started with his life. He was a porter, moving heavy stuff all around the place, doing hard labor like someone who had no choice. Uncle Collis was not amused. Huntington was proud of his three bucks a week and thought he could get even more on account of having a goodwill of Uncle Collis. But Uncle Collis, one of the four big men who they say built the Southern Pacific Railroad, had an idea about what the Huntingtons were worth. Those three dollars a week, those three dollars weren't worth the paper they were printed on. 
It would be better, Collis said, to accept no salary at all than to take $3 a week. To have a Huntington work for free was to make a point. The point of working for free was a declaration. We don't have to work. $3 is beneath us. If we own everything, can be anything, can do anything, that $3, it's already yours. Don't be a dummy. Think like a tycoon. Thank you. Thanks, Dana. David Hernandez is our next reader. Um, his most recent book of poetry is Dear Sincerely. His other collections include Hoodwinked, Always Danger, and A House Waiting for Music. He's been awarded an NEA Literature Fellowship and two Pushcart Prizes. His poems have appeared in Poetry, Plowshares, Agni, and The Best American Poetry, and he teaches creative writing at California State University, Long Beach, and is married to the writer Lisa Glatt. David. Hello. I'm going to drink some water. I'll stall a little bit. Drink some water. Uh, thank you, Zizava, um, for being kind to me, and to Lou and David uh, for putting this reading together. This is awesome. Last time I was here, um, just about 10 years ago, and there was like three people here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to blame uh, the Lakers game that was on that night. <clears throat> okay, um, I'm going to start with a poem that was um, actually first published in Zizava and um, inspired by my time teaching composition. This is dedicated to all you professors out there and students. Dear Professor, let me explain my lengthy absence. My entire family got food poisoning, <laughs> myself included. We had eaten rotten fish tacos, old bad cod. I've never been so nauseous. The house wouldn't stop spinning, wouldn't stop shuffling its windows. I was gushing from, I'll spare you the details. <laughs> And Grandma, shutting down, hallucinating, said the world was pixelated. We rushed her to St. Mary's on a flat tire, no spare in the trunk, a burst of sparks as the screaming rim scored the road like a pizza cutter. They plugged her in. Her monitor drew neon green mountain ranges. Strange. You'd think they'd have internet access there, free Wi-Fi, a wing in the hospital to check one's email. Odd, too, no connectivity back home, no electric blood sluicing through the wires, a hitch in the system, some inexplicable glitch, impossible for me to get a hold of you until now, two weeks after the due date. <laughs> I'm sorry, and sorry I missed class today, another flat tire, stupid overturned box of nails on the freeway, I hissed for miles, the car listed, such a headache, and still queasy from the tacos. <laughs> Please consider all this when grading my essay, see attachment. Please excuse any typos or logical fallacies. My mind has been elsewhere, 
Grandma's mountains stretch flat, her green horizon. I want to live forever. I want to pass your class and graduate, get a gig, marry some hottie, see the world, drive until my wheels come wobbling off and keep driving. But first, I need to pass your class. No pressure, honestly, no pressure. I heard them all. <clears throat> okay, um, I was uh, invited to be the write-in residence at Fullerton, um, and before I started teaching there, um, I was just wondering about the faculty parking situation. Uh, so I went to their class website, um, and I thought their questions were kind of odd on the parking FAQ, and I thought maybe there's something here. Uh, this is a, an abbreviated version. It's quite long. <clears throat> Parking FAQ. Question. Why do I have to pay for parking? Answer. To maintain the lots, fill cracks and potholes. We need money for that. And money to repaint all those parallel lines, all those arrows, mow the islands, plant annuals, perennials, and keep electricity in the evening humming down rows and rows of lampposts. Otherwise, vehicles weaving over a rutted field, the chaos of night class. Question. My friend is leaving campus. Can I use his permit? <laughs> Answer. Only if you wear his clothes and attend his classes. Only if you foam your mouth with his toothbrush and dream his dreams. Question. This is not so much a question, but a complaint about the proliferation and height of the speed bumps and how going over them, they rattle my teeth. Answer, wear a mouth guard. <laughs> question, can I wait in the aisles for a parking stall to open? Answer, when in your life are you not waiting for something? You wait for the lecture to end, movie to begin, email to arrive, microwave to beep, neighbor's dog to quit howling, sex to ripple across your ravenous flesh. You waiting for a parking stall is a pint of waiting in the ocean of waiting whereupon your heart circles like an orphan whale. In short, ride a bicycle to campus. <laughs> Question. I don't want to drive to campus. What are my alternatives? Answer. Walking. The aforementioned bicycle. The bus. Razor scooter. Thirty years from now, a father would tell his teenage son, back in the day, I got to school on a razor scooter. His son, in turn, will picture the longest grooves in pavement wiggling over sidewalks and crosswalks, the vandalism of moving forward. Question, what should I do if my car won't start? Answer, Sounds like you're in a horror film. 
Listen for zombies. Sounds like monks chanting. Check your side mirror, rear view mirror. Pray the engine catches before you try the ignition again. Blind spot. They should be stumbling closer, closer, each one slightly pigeon toed. Question. Your sarcasm isn't helpful. Your answers aren't answers. Your answers suggest a wound underneath. I'm taking psychology this semester. Love it. Love the unpeeling that goes on. Sometimes a wound is underneath. Why won't you help me? Answer. Because I need help myself. There are days I'm looking for something, a book, say. Walk into a room and forget I was looking for a book. Days I wear a jacket of dread and take a pill or two. Underneath, there is a wound. On and off since I was six, I've sensed menace in the air. Atoms holding knives. Sometimes no pills, but a tumbler of bourbon, the slow dissolve of one cube. Question, hey, are you okay? Answer, better than this morning, worse than Tuesday, as forlorn as a child who knows the kite's not coming back. Question, tell you what? Let me make you some hot cocoa, Nana's recipe, and a squat white mug bring you hot cocoa. The smell alone, oh man, the smell alone will swaddle your bones. Can I bring you a mug, the rich scent, and up-twisting wisps of steam? Answer, I'm moved by your offer. The warm gust of your compassion, despite my unhealthfulness. This is not so much an answer, but rather me wishing each time you tap your horn, a parking stall opens magically. Me wishing your car battery never dies. You have one of those vampire batteries. Lucky you, lucky life, mile after mile. All right, last poem. I feel like I have to read this considering the political climate. All American. I'm this tiny, this statuesque, and everywhere in between. And everywhere in between, bony and overweight, my shadow cannot hold one shape in Omaha in Tuscaloosa, in Aberdeen. My skin is mocha brown, two shades darker than taupe. Your question is racist, nutmeg, beige. I'm not offended by your question at all. Penis or vagina? Yes and yes. Gay or straight? Both boxes. Bye. Not by, who cares, stop fixating on my sex life. Jesus never leveled his eye to a bedroom's keyhole. 
I go to church in Tempe, in Waco, the one with the exquisite stained glass, the one with a white spire like the tip of a clansman's hood. Churches creep me out. I never step inside one, never utter hymns. Sundays, I hide my flesh with camouflage and hunt. I don't hunt, but wish every deer wore a bulletproof vest and fired back. It's cinnamon, my skin. It's more sandstone than any color I know. I voted for Obama, McCain, Nader. I was too apathetic to vote, too lazy to walk one block, two blocks to the voting booth. For or against a woman's right to choose. Yes, for and against. For waterboarding, for strapping detainees with snorkels and diving masks. Against burning fossil fuels, let's punish all those smokestacks for eating the ozone. Bring the wrecking balls, but build more smokestacks. We need jobs here in Harrisburg, here in Kalamazoo. Against gun control, four cotton bullets, for constructing a better fence along the border. Let's raise concrete toward the sky. Why does it need all that space to begin with? For creating holes in the fence, adding ladders. They're not here to steal work from us. No one dreams of crab walking for hours across a lettuce field so someone could order the Caesar salad. No one dreams of sliding a squeegee down the cloud-mirrored windows of a high-rise, but some of us do it. Some of us sell flowers, some of us cut hair, some of us carefully steer a mower around the cemetery grounds. Some of us paint houses, some of us monitor the power grid, some of us ring you up while some of us crisscross a parking lot to gather the shopping carts into one long, rolling, clamorous, and glittering backbone. Thank you. Our next reader is Melissa Yancey, who is the recipient of a 2016 NEA Literature Fellowship and winner of the Drew Hines Literature Prize from the University of Pittsburgh Press for her short fiction collection, Dog Ear, Dog Years, I'm sorry, which will be published later this year. Her stories have appeared in Glimmer Train, One Story, Prairie Schooner, Ziziva, the Missouri Review, and elsewhere. She lives in Los Angeles and works as a fundraiser for health care causes. Please welcome Melissa. Zizova was, can you hear me? Is this good? Zizova was kind enough to publish the title story uh, in the collection Dog Ears, and uh, tonight I'm going to read an excerpt from another story in the collection um, called Go Forth. His wife, Beverly, was on the mailing list for every conceivable kind of cause, cleft pallets and felled trees. When he managed to intercept the mail, he threw them all away. It says here, she said, that soldiers who would have died in all the previous wars because of their injuries are now living because of surgical advances. 
That's a good thing, he said. Well, she considered this, I don't think that's for me to say. She got up to refill his coffee. It's a fact, so we have to do more to support them now. There was no point in arguing with her. He saw the flourish with which she signed her name on $25 checks, like she were passing legislation into law. The coffee was good that morning. By some talent he could not begin to contemplate, no matter how often she made it, the brew was different each time. When he'd remarked on this years ago, she had told him that he could make the coffee, that she was confident it would be precisely the same each day, and that that sounded like a thrilling way to live. He was off guard then when hidden amid the fundraising appeals, she produced another kind of letter. Look at this, she said. He could tell from the artificial brightness she'd staged this discovery. The letter inside announced the kidney reunion was in Chicago in five weeks' time. Who is being reunited, he said. We've never met any of these people. It's an expression. Would you rather they call it a union? That sounds like a marriage. Or is it the kidneys, he said, that are meant to be reunited with their former hosts? Former owners, he would have said, but that wasn't how doctors spoke of organs. He had merely been a 65-year host to his kidney, a kidney that now, like some foreign student on exchange, had been shipped off, only never to return. And someone else's kidney, Beverly called it Blanche, because all they knew was that it had come from Tennessee, now resided in his wife. Their friends joked that if Beverly started sweetening her tea, he would know why. It reminded him of how certain people, uncomfortable with sex, would name their sexual parts, as though making things precious would strip them of their power. There'll be a group photo, she said, handing him the invitation, and they've approached People magazine. His wife loved the medical extremes of people, conjoined twins, progeria, shared psychosis, and now, as two links in a 60-person kidney transplant chain, they apparently qualified for those ranks. He could imagine the schmaltzy paying-it-forward headline, a sidebar with the altruistic donor who had set the chain in motion. Do you think my kidney will remember me, he said. Beverly took off her reading glasses and stared at him. Sheldon, don't you want to meet them? I do. I need to meet them. Oh, his wife. If only she were the kind of woman who roughed up the still moments of his Sundays with ill-time requests for eggs or lady shaving cream or canned tuna. If only she had asked for small things all of the time in the way so many wives did and kept her reserves dangerously depleted. But she had used the word need so judiciously in the last 36 years. Now, five weeks later, he and Beverly were lined up in numerical boarding order at the airport gate. They did not have assigned seats. What is the meaning of this, he asked her. Why did you choose this airline? It's more efficient, she said. They've done studies. The planes run on schedule this way. You should have been Japanese, he said. I'll take that as a compliment, she said, nudging him as the line began to move. Inside the plane, it did not seem more efficient. There were passengers in window seats and aisle seats, sandwiching middle seats no one wanted to claim. In the back, too close to the lavatory, they found a row where they could sit together. Beverly took the middle so that he could have the aisle. There were crumbs in his seat, and a foil wrapper shined in the back pocket in front of him. He had watched the last set of passengers deplane when they arrived. Didn't there used to be a turnaround period when the planes were clean between flights? That was what accounted for the so-called efficiency in his view, not some novel method of boarding, but cutting corners. The world had become so garish, Sheldon thought. 
It wasn't that he'd been a prude exactly, but the world had been slyer in his youth. Women's clothing had been suggestive. People spoke in euphemism, and formality was maintained in public spaces. Now people changed genders and exchanged vital organs and celebrated everything. Ben, one of his close friends from work, was a homosexual, and for most of their lives, it was unacknowledged at the office and at dinners when men brought their wives. Ben had a longtime partner, but no one had met him. And Sheldon had liked to imagine Ben's life like he would imagine India or Morocco, places of dirt and vibrant color both, a kind of beauty and ugliness he could not inhabit. But now, Ben and his partner came to parties in their Bermuda shorts and Sperry topsider loafers, their sets of hairy legs crossed on the couch. The India Sheldon had imagined turned out to closely resemble Minneapolis. <laughs> Once he had asked Ben, don't you miss it at times being illicit? Sheldon was sure there was a kind of gay man who would have admitted he did. Like you'd miss getting kicked in the nuts, Ben had said. Have you considered that our links could be anyone? Beverly had asked him the night before as they'd packed. Any age, male or female, any race. She was rolling her clothes into snug little cocoons because she had read somewhere that was a better way to pack. Another so-called innovation when he knew she didn't have the patience to properly fold. I know that, he said. But have you considered it? What does that mean? Really pictured it. Imagine the people in the flesh so that you won't be surprised. What are you suggesting, he said. She was squeezing the air out of a space saver bag their daughters had bought them, as though they traveled with enough frequency and brought home so many world market treasures they could not afford to pack air. I know this is hard for you, she said. I'm fine, he said. He had not told her about his silly nightmare in which a new kidney had grown back in the harvested one's place. At first it had been a good dream, the relief of regeneration, until the doctors made use of this medical miracle. They removed that kidney and another grew back and another until he was single-handedly crossing patient after patient off the transplant list. Okay, she said, let's say I have the kidney of a black man. That may be so, he said. How am I supposed to feel about that? I feel it's wonderful, she said. She zipped up the left side of her case. She was finished already, and he had only gotten started. How is feeling it's wonderful any better than feeling uncomfortable, he said. You want it to be a black man in particular? I want it to be someone different from me, she said. You'll be disappointed if it's an older white woman. A little. I don't think I understand that, he said, which was the kindest thing he could think to say. I didn't expect you would, she said. The Chicago restaurant their daughter Thisbe had recommended was called Forage and Fauna and looked like one Beverly had seen in a food and wine magazine. Beverly had always found a consumptive, irreducible joy in magazines. The pages never failed to restore world order, filling her with both longing and satisfaction. A yearning on the one hand for places she would not visit, and yet a comfort in knowing that no place would be as perfect in the flesh as the lit and cropped version, that the thing she longed to possess could only be possessed with her eyes on the page. And now here she was, having walked straight into the pages, like one of those blurry young people they shot in photographs, in motion when the restaurant around them stood still. She texted Thisbe to let her know they'd arrived. Thisbe, who had traveled to 18 countries, humored her mother's enthusiasm for small excursions. Please make Dad go to a musical, Thisbe texted back, or better yet, a Sam Shepard play. Beverly had heard of Sam Shepard, but couldn't recall what plays he'd written. 
This beat was making a joke, only Beverly couldn't be sure what kind of joke. She was about to put Sam Shepard into Google. She kept up with her daughters through research when she felt Sheldon watching her. Exactly when, Sheldon thought, had banquettes become passé? Fine dining used to come with expensive chairs, wide and well upholstered. This restaurant was little more than a medieval dining hall, communal tables flanked by hard wooden benches, naked light bulbs dangling as though they couldn't afford proper shades. The menu was a slim sheet of cardstock. Pork cheek, nettle chimichurri, pea tendril, lacto-fermented hot sauce. <laughs> the list format suggested nothing about the composition of the dish in the way some languages emitted vowels in their printed form, knowing the reader was well-versed enough to supply the missing sounds. Beverly brought out her reading glasses and ran her finger along the lines as though that might improve their decipherability. She'd be tempted to ask the server about the ingredients, but she knew he hated it when she asked a server to explain things. No matter how obscure, it always made him feel like a rube. I'm sure everything here is good, she said. It was so like Beverly to say that. What could possibly have made her sure of this? But he could see it was the adventure of it. Their lives had been confined to ever smaller circles as her kidney failure had progressed, their time defined by dialysis, their activity by the vagaries of her stamina, her thirst. But the truth was that he had felt safest and happiest in the smallest of those circles, when nothing more was required of him than to take care of his wife. Alone in the hotel, he did what she asked. He considered who Beverly's donor would be and who his own recipient would be and pictured how he would interact with them, what he would reveal in his face. If it were a black man, as his wife had suggested, it would heighten the strangeness for the same reason it heightened the miraculous. It created visual drama, a reminder of how extraordinary the entire experiment was. What he was afraid Beverly was suggesting was that it heightened his sense of uncleanliness, if that was the word, the queasiness the exchange evoked in him, as though black germs were worse than white germs. That had nothing to do with it. Did it? Once, he had been seated on a plane next to a dark-skinned man, Pakistani maybe, whose body odor was so intense he thought he might be sick. It was true that the man's very foreignness brought disease to Sheldon's mind. Perhaps he was xenophobic, or racist, or both. But then, he also viewed every toddler with suspicion, their splayed hands like biological weapons, ready to transmit disease. The only person whose germs did not count were Beverly's, since after many years of marriage, it was hard not to see her as an extension of his self. That was one of the paradoxes of marriage. After all these years, he understood that his wife's inner workings were essentially unknowable to him. And yet her body, having lived in tandem with his own, he believed to be a part of him. The two really did become one. So his kidney, had it gone to Beverly, would not have been entirely lost. It would still have been there, residing beside him. Thanks. So our last reader is going to be Lou Matthews. Before I introduce him, I just want to say, I want to thank everybody, all the readers. I want to thank you guys all for coming. And I want to thank Ziziva, um, and particularly Laura Kogan, who's the editor of Ziziva, and Oscar Villon, who's the managing editor. Um, you know, Ziziva, as you guys probably all know, as we may have 
mentioned is a magazine that publishes West Coast writers. Um, it was started to publish West Coast writers because if we don't publish West Coast writers, nobody's going to publish West Coast writers. Um, so that is, to me, the essence of community, which we've been talking about. And I also think, actually, interestingly enough, that part of that community in, is, is illustrated by the fact that so far, of all the writing that we've heard read tonight, only one piece has been published in <laughs> which is kind of great, right? It's like not possession. It's, um, it's a community. It's a center. It's a place for write, where writers gather. That's what literary journals are at their best. And it's one of the reasons that I was um, delighted to be a, a part of Zizza when they asked me to be a part of it. So um, I also want to thank Lou, um, particularly for really doing the heavy lifting and putting this thing together. Um, so Um, Lou Matthews has received a Pushcart Prize, a Catherine Ann Porter Prize, National Endowment for the Arts, and California Arts uh, Commission Fellowships in Fiction. His stories have been published in Black Clock, Tin House, The New England Review, 40 other literary magazines, 10 fiction anthologies, and several textbooks. His first novel, L.A. Breakdown, was a Los Angeles Times best book. Um, This, in the current issue of Zizova, he makes his first appearance in the journal. Please welcome Lou Matthews. I do have to do a plug for Zizava to hold this up for show and tell. If you haven't bought your coffee, yeah. do understand this is your ticket to the after party. Um, and you also need to know that Zizava, unlike most literary magazines, is an independent uh, magazine. They have no subsidies from universities or college. So it's only 12 bucks, and it goes directly to a good cause. Also... Also, the writers have to purchase the leftover copies. So. <laughs> I'm going to be continuing the string a little bit. Um, I'll be reading from two different stories tonight from a collection called Shaky Town, which is the name of a neighborhood. Two of its citizens, Anita Espinosa and Emiliano Gomez, have been next-door neighbors, friends, and enemies for almost 50 years. The first story, Doña Anita, is very short. It's Anita's version of the truth. And then I'll read three pages from Last Dance, which is Emiliano's version of the same lifetime. They don't agree on much. Um, This is 10 minutes max. Believe me, I do understand. I'm the only thing that stands between you and the first sip of wine or the first taste of chocolate mousse. Yeah, let me move this. A little better? Doña Anita. The old borracho is playing his guitar again. I can hear him through our hedge. I'm sitting on my porch swing, as I am sure he is sitting on his in these twin houses. That old borracho, Emiliano Gomez, has lived next door to me for more than 40 years. And he's been playing his guitar all those years. But it doesn't sound the way it used to. The hedge is Eugenia and has a new bug that shrinks the leaves and fills them with blisters. And now that it's so thin, you can hear better. And he also plays differently because he lost those three fingers on his right hand. He also said, he always said he was lucky not to lose his cord hand. He strums with the stubs and even picks a little with his thumb and little finger. Forty years ago, when we were all newly married and there was no hedge, he and my Lorenzo would stand in the yard and serenade me and Josie. 
My Lorenzo couldn't play anything, but he had a deep voice, and he sang like an angel going to heaven. Whenever he sang Volver, he could make both me and Josefina cry. We were so happy then, and I'm not making this up. I know you can lie to yourself, because of course you were happy. You were young. But we really were. There was plenty of work, and a man could earn enough so that his wife could stay home and raise the kids. I was always sorry that Lorenzo and Emiliano didn't work together. They were good friends. But Lorenzo was a paving contractor, and Emiliano had a more artistic nature. He could carve beautiful things, statues and chairs, and even musical instruments, until he went to work at the studios. That ruined him, I think. All that money, and they broke everything he made. After his son died, everything changed. He loved that boy, Pablo, and after he died, that man changed, and I don't just mean about him losing his fingers and losing his job. You can get another job. You can have another kid. Emiliano was different. I think he lost his faith. He was always kind to Josie, but he didn't want any more kids, and I know that discouraged her. She got the cancer in her 40s, and she died well before her time. A few years after Josie died, Emiliano planted that hedge between our houses, and about the time you couldn't see over there anymore, he started bringing women home. I don't say they were putas. Maybe he was picking them up at that Kelso's roundhouse or Las Quince Letras, where he spent so much time. Maybe they weren't paid for whores, but they all delivered, and some of them were noisy. We could hear them. They made my Lorenzo smile and turned him into the devil, too. I got no peace those nights. Some of those nights, sometimes when those women went home, Emiliano would come out on his porch and play his guitar. He'd play the songs of the revolution, but he'd play them slowly. The Adelita is a lively song, but when you play it slowly, it's a love song full of longing. Every time, he would take my Lorenzo out to our porch. Play it again, Lorenzo would say, through the hedge, and he would. He'd play it three or four times, and sometimes La Cucaracha, which is a thoughtful and, and funny song, played slow. And when Emiliano was ready to go to bed, he would play Lorenzo's favorite. Lorenzo was a tough man, the rock we all washed up against. But when Emiliano played Cuatro Caminos, that would always make my husband cry. He played it at Lorenzo's funeral, and I couldn't stop crying. Tonight, the old Baraccio has been playing a lot of Pedro Infante. He's drinking, you can tell. You can hear the ice in his glass. I don't know what he drinks now. He and Lorenzo stayed tequila in the old days, muy tradicional, with the lime and salt. No ice for them in those days. But I think they drank less. I never had a taste for it. Sometimes a beer, but I never really liked it. I do have what my abuela and my mama had, good hot tea, yerba buena, and the other herb that helps with the arthritis. They tell me if you smoke it, life seems comical, but in tea, it only makes you calm. Now he's playing a paso doble that takes me back to when we all still dance, and it's lively. And when he stops in the middle, he catches me, my toe topping, tapping on the, por on the porch boards. He's quiet, and then I hear him refill his glass, and then he says through the hedge, What would you like to hear, Doña Anita? And I say, The Adelita. And he plays, and I push back on the swing and lift my feet.
is Mariano's version, <coughs> last dance. The old lady next door is having a birthday and thinks she, she thinks I should come to the party at the community center. That's what they call the gymnasium at Coma Park now. It still smells like a gym to me. That old lady is turning 75 and I guess she thinks I should forgive and forget because she's now old and venerable. That was the word her friend, the priest, Damadeo, used to describe her when he invited all parishioners to her birthday party. A venerable member of our congregation. Socorro said she puffed up like a bird on a cold morning when the priest said that. What I say is that Anita Espinosa has been a cabrona for a lot longer than she's been old. And I would know. She's been my neighbor for almost 50 years. She's three years younger than I am, but she's always been older. When she and her husband Lorenzo moved next door, she and my wife Josie got to be friends, and I liked Lorenzo. I knew him better than his own wife did, and I still liked him. Lorenzo was a paving contractor, and to get the city jobs, he also had to pave the way with the politicians. He knew a lot of bartenders and whores, but he usually made it to Mass on Sunday, and that was enough for Anita. She was religious, and Lorenzo pretended to be, so she thought they were happy until he died. My wife Josefina died long before Lorenzo did. A couple years after Josie died, I remembered that I was a man and I brought some girlfriends home. And that was when Anita started causing me trouble. The old ladies at Cristo Rey started giving me the malojo, the stink eye. And even at Las Quince Letras, I heard about the chisme she was spreading about me. Then that Filipino priest, Amadeo, came up to me after mass right in front of everybody, like I'd asked for his help. He said he hadn't seen me at church lately. I told him maybe he hadn't been looking hard enough. And then he asked me if I was experiencing doubts about my faith. I said, doubts? He said, yes, doubts about faith and life, and was I in need of counsel? I said, no, not at all. I said that every day I thank the God who had provided me with the fruit of the vine and the joys of women, which made him blush, so I knew for sure where that question would come from. I talked to Lorenzo about it, and he said he would talk to Anita. But he never did, or she didn't listen, so our friendship dried up. The bad news she spread about me kept reaching my ears, so I stopped going to church and planted a Eugenia pledge between our houses and let it grow up. When Lorenzo died, they read the will. It turned out that he'd left some money to educate a couple kids that Anita didn't know about. She made some novenas and ignored her own greedy children who wanted to contest the will. And then she joined the church full time. It was sad. She was only in her 50s and still a good-looking woman. But she put on the black reboso and mantilla and started to shrink. You could see the hump grow on her back and her shoulders reaching up for her ears. I still said hello to her when I saw her at Lupi's store or on the street, and I was always polite and friendly right up until the time she was going off to Mass, about 6 in the morning, and she saw my friend Socorro leaving my house on her way to work. Socorro's a good woman, and a hard-working woman. She tends bar at Las Quince Letras and works the morning shift at IHOP because she's a widow and has three kids. And sometimes, out of kindness, she also tends to me. And that was her mistake, according to Anita. Socorro nodded and said, Buenos dias. And Anita hissed and said, Sin vergüenza? That was like calling her a whore. I stopped being polite after that. I wouldn't talk to her. 
And I fertilized and watered the hell out of that Eugenia hedge. <laughs> Can we get one more round of applause for David Ulin for leading? <laughs> to all the lovely contributors who read tonight, and to Ziziva, and to Skylight for hosting. Um, please remember to pick up your copy at the front desk. Pick up one of the flyers that tells you what events are happening this month. And I'm sure if you stick around, the contributors would be happy to sign a copy of your journal. Thank you so much for coming. Have a good night. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. And we hope to see you soon.